Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest for this episode is from the 2008 forums you know him as Colin YNWA. It's Colin Taylor. Welcome, Colin. Thank you, Eamon, and lovely to be here. An absolute pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Of course, you, you're you quite uh, active on the 2080 forums, aren't you? That's how we got in touch. I, I, yeah, I'm very, very old school. I, <laughs> I, st- I still prefer a forum to Facebook or any other sort of online mechanism. I just find it's a, it's a nice way to chat in a much more organised way. I'm, very just, wise. <laughs> very so, wise. So, Colin, first time on the show. So, therefore, we start with 2080 origin stories. Tell us your beginnings. I wish I could say it was an original story. It's a story you've all heard a million times before. I, issue one was bought by my brother in a household that got two comics a week each uh, from our very generous parents and read it on and off for the first 400-odd issues. Uh, it went across the road to a friend called Simon Gaffigan's at one point and this, that, and the other. But we were reading it on and off. The houses were coming in between getting Star Wars weekly, Doctor Who weekly and then monthly and had no the eagle and whatever else came through uh, and, and, and swapped in and out. But then issue 431 I got when I was in 1985, I was going on holiday to London, not on my own, with my parents, and uh, I got 431 and I think the 85 summer special as uh, something to read in the car on the way down. And um, the back of the summer special had uh, an advert for um, one of the first, I think it might be the second, Forbidden Planet, which happened to be near the um, British Museum when we were going to the British Museum. Yeah. So I begged my dad and my mum to take me to Forbidden Planet, and I spent all of my holiday money on about 15 or so back progs, and it, I was just hooked from that point forward. I'd read those comics till they literally fell apart. Uh, and I was I was like, this, this is when I was, what, 13? So I, this is a time when I should have been moving on in life, and just the opposite happened, and I, uh, I got fully immersed in the world of comics, stuck with it till around the, the stereotypical issue of thousand so at that point i was at university parents were still getting it i don't think i was reading it anymore um so i dropped off at that point when i uh well my life moved on to more should we say hedonistic pleasures and then um got back on board when i saw a load of sort of publicity about origins so uh and i picked up issue 1506 very quickly put an order in my local comic shop to get it regularly very quickly that moved to a sub and, and i'm still going ever since and and frankly at this age and with this much enjoyment getting from it i can't see myself ever leaving it again i i, I adore to i mean i read a lot of comics far too many comics but um 2000 d remains absolutely the center of um, all of my comic reading Fantastic. Good man, as they say. Yes. Uh, still still enjoying it everywhere you can get in the prog and the meg, I presume. Uh, it, it, when it, yes, I get the meg digitally because I'm, you know, I'm old, but I'm I'm trying. Right. So I, I get the, the meg digitally just for physical space reasons as much as anything because I've got a whole room dedicated to comic books at the back of our garage alongside poor people with that. But um, but even that is now full. And so you have to make concessions every now and again. And so shifting some of my, my reading onto digital is is, uh, is a good and effective way of doing this. But yes, get it every, every week in the Meg every month. So here's something that you can't read digitally at the moment, as far as I can tell. Tell us about Absolutely. a very interesting series that you've, to- you've chosen for the book club. So what we're going to be talking about tonight is Outcast, a 1987 to 88, DC, what was then called, I believe, a maxi series. So, so the same sort of format as The Watchmen. And 
it's by Wagner, Grant, Cam Kennedy, and there's some letterists and colorists you've got far more better notes about than I have. So I'll let you fill in those blanks. And it's, to my knowledge, never been reprinted. And it's, it, it is on that basis, a bit of a hidden gem. So when this came out in 87, I was reading all sorts of American books. I was picking up, um, you know, Last American, all of these sort of uh, the crossover books from 2000 AD. Where the sort of the second, well, the end of the first wave, second wave of of, of um, the British invasion was going ahead, um, and I missed Outcasts existing even then. But when I got back into reading comics, so in the sort of the the early two thousands, I stumbled across a house ad in some comic or other. I was reading maybe in a like a Baxter edition legion of superheroes i imagine or something i saw a side bet of this comic by wagner grant and cam kennedy that i'd never read and i'm like what the chuff's this did a bit of research couldn't find it collected so used uh, the magnificent power of of ebay to pick up a, a set and it, it's fascinating on, on on two levels firstly you have to read it in in original floppy comic format um because as i say i'm not aware of it being collected at any point and so that gives a lot of 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 difference about it but also the fact that as we'll come to discuss the the nature of the story in some ways feels very 2000 ad but in other ways because of the the different page length of the individual issues it has differences to it it has things that that make it different so the very fact that you you know on the mega city book club are not able to read a book has its own sort of evocative part to it but also the fact that it's it's a different structure to a quote-unquote typical 2000 AD story makes it a very interesting read in itself. And so that was why I thought it'd be a, a nice one to touch on. And also, you know, I, I am quite well-versed in comics, so it's possible, question mark, that some other people may not have heard of this. And it'd be nice to sort of pop it under people's noses because it's, it's a good read. Well, I'll confess that I knew of it, but for some reason I'd never read it. So this, I hunted down the issues for this. Um, and we'll, we'll get into it as we go along. Let me just fill in the rest of those credits. As you say, Cam Kennedy here is inked yes. by Steve Montano. We've got, I think, at least two colourists, uh, Nancy Houlihan and Tom Zuko. Uh, letterers, there's a few. John Costanza, Bill Oakley, Augustine Mass, I noticed. Edited yeah. by Rennie Witterstatter and Mike Carlin for DC Comics, as you say. Give us the brief synopsis. Who are these outcasts and what is their challenge? So the outcasts, well, we'll start off with the setting. There's the, the big city. There's a city called literally Big City. And it's a, this is all going to sound quite cliched. And we'll come back into a little bit about why it's maybe not as cliched as this is going to make it sound. We, we, we have a stereotypical dystopian society where the rich live in the equivalent to our our one percent uh live in what's called the enclaves and therefore called clavies and they have uh, there's a disenfranchised lower class that live in slums and um not untopically well firstly the 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 rich and and and, and the empowered euthanized people mandatory by the age of 60 they're encouraging people to get sterilized um but they take it beyond this and and, and they start to talk about extraditing the unwanted not unheard of even in these times i'm afraid to say mm. to in this case lunar colony colonies where we are told they will be uh, able to work in much more pleasant conditions earn a living and, and feed back usefully um to the big city and the rich have in there and there's a, a group of housecasts uh, put together by a character called um, Kane Sl- Salinger, 
one of the clavies. She's one of the rich, but she's a daughter of one of the more powerful people in the city who has, has been killed. And so she's had enough, and she starts to put together a group of outcasts, a, a group of people to sort of inform and inspire and, 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 and in her mind start rebellion. And if I'm honest, those outcasts on paper sound either very familiar or, or quite cliche. So there's a an angry young man who happens to be blue called Shock, who has bioelectrical sparkly powers and quite quite superhero in his attitude in some ways, except for that, you know, that, well, I suppose that stereotypical pent-up superhero anger. There's B.D. Rickenbacker, who will look pretty familiar to anybody who's read much Judge Dredd, um, has a mechanical arm, uh, a metal plate on his forehead. He's an ex-sport star, but again, in, in, again, it's futuristic, bloody sport. And he's a sort of the hard but dumb member of the team. There's a character called uh, Yancey Quig, uh, who is immortal, he can't die. But again, it's very often the case in, in, in comics, is as tired of life, has had enough and, and wants to... Um, uh, would like at this point to die. He's, he's lived long enough. He's fed up of life, and 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 is on at this point and able to do it. And it turns out that uh, Kane herself actually has a, a sort of vampiric mutant power as well. And so she puts together this this group of outcasts to try to expose, uh, well, the truths behind the the big cities and its powers, um, lives, lies, and and uh, misgivings, and. Um, and at this point, it's as I say, it sounds all very cliché. There's a lot of references to 2000 things. So the the police force in in the, um, the big city are called the Enforcers, and they look very familiar to any readers of of 2000 AD. The whole setting just just reeks of of Mega City One, um, frankly. And um, yeah, so that's the that's the basic prep setup. Is is this this band of, of of renegades taken to a a secret base to try to fight back against the powers that be? But it does spin off there into some very dark and twisted places. And I'll just mention I'll mention one of the dark and twisted places because, as you say, Yancey Quig. Uh, wants to die. He has suicidal ideation and, in fact, attempts suicide in the pages of the comic. So we'll just mention that as a content note. The other content note is that I sometimes get messages when I cover American comics um, on Mega City Book Club. But um, although this is DC, as you say, a 12-issue maxi-series, it's, um, it's described... Well, how is it described on the front cover above the title? <laughs> So it's a 12-issue Future Shocker. There it is on the first issue. It literally... In fact, it's on every issue it is, isn't it? Yeah, 12-issue so. Future Shocker. It is, yep. Yeah, through 1 through 12. So it is very, in a way... Um, there, as you say, there are there are similarities and differences to 2000 AD. Um, yeah. It's interesting how, you know, how this strip or this story came about, how they came to be in DC Comics. I must admit, in a part, there's not a great deal written about this on the internet. So, my understanding is that it was part of of that recruitment drive to bring British creators over. Wagner and Grant being some of them, they were doing other work at that time. I think they just started their Batman run at this they, point. They're going to start um, it. Well, they're probably writing it at this time, aren't they? Because it's going to come yeah. out. It's going to come out in February '88, and this when it was the first. Uh, this is cover dated October 87, the first issue. So, yeah, 
they were probably already yeah, it goes october know, 87 to yeah september 88 isn't it yeah so yeah they were going to back back to start their run on detective comics which obviously is mainly alan grant um yes. they were pitching in america as part of that british invasion and i guess they were also it wasn't just the british invasion they were also looking for something a bit more creator owned than 2000 ad could provide yeah um i guess um of course it also leads to the famous anecdote about um somebody getting cam kennedy's name wrong i believe <laughs> I've this. I noticed you, you had a Cam Kenny idea, and it's not one that I know. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that's referenced in uh, in Kenny Who. Um, yes, I think this is where story. I think this is where they said somebody at DC said, or what somebody at one of the big two said. You know, when they mentioned Cam Kennedy, they said Kenny Who, and of course, that later becomes uh, <laughs> a, a, a Judge Dredd Kenny story. Who. A literally Kenny Who yeah. Judge Dredd story. You know, in terms of the timing, I put this in our notes. This is about the time that the Wagner and Grant are writing Oz for the 2000 AD. Um, That's right. Screamer, which is has some vague similarities, was would come out in '89. We've yeah, done that. On the that podcast. was Milligan Ewins and Dill. That would come out afterwards. Yeah, Watchmen is literally finishing as this starts. Right. Um, so I think it, issue 12 of Watchmen comes out the month. The issue one of of the outcast starts last american isn't too far off as well is it and and you've, you've got in the notes yeah that's going to be uh wagner grant and mcmahon but again that's a few years after it's interesting as you say watchman literally this is the tail end of watchman it starts uh yeah. and it is that british invasion vibe i like i say i'm surprised i didn't pick this one up um because you know anything by i've british- always yeah I'm amazed because this is a time when they, it wasn't too long that you know, Grant Morrison's going to start doing Animal Man relatively soon after this. And I was picking up all of this stuff and somehow this floated quietly and, and under the radar. There was a lot of content coming out at that time, of course. And there was yes. also, also that sense that you know they had these the Baxter format, I think it was called then, which is slightly better paper quality than a, a regular thing. So things like Green Arrow was moving into that. Um, there was that sort of sense that American comics were growing up in that sort of post-Watchman, Dark Knight, um, Mouse, uh, Triumphant sort of coming out. And this is... this does go to some you know quite dark places pretty quickly but essentially you know back to that point about the the 2000 deep vibe of it it you, I, I mean i, I do know this has happened this is just me speculating but you, you really do get the impression that there's always been that cliche that the 2000 has never landed in america and you do wonder if this is an attempt to to spin that on its head and say well if, if 2000 ad doesn't land in America as it is, let's take a 2000 story and retool it for the American market. So you've got that sense that you've got these rebels against the powers of being. We can talk a little bit more about some of the villains, I suppose, at some point. But you've got this real sense that it's about the good guys, quote unquote. You know, there are elements of anti-heroes very much in them, but you know, they are the good guys. And the rebels, which which I suppose you could suggest. I mean, I'm not American. I, I can't say for sure, but is very embedded into the American psyche. And there's very much that sense that it's it's almost like the way in 2000 will take a a movie trope or a you know, a, you know they'll take uh, um, a sports like rollerball film and make uh, Harlem Heroes out of it and all of those sorts of things. They'll take Dirty Harry. They'll that'll become through you know twisted mechanisms. Judge Dredd. It's almost like they've done they've reversed engineering. They've taken a two thousand D story and, and and just tweaked it and retooled it to just be a bit more 
amenable to the American market um as it was perceived i'm not saying you know i don't stand by that cliche that americans don't get too far today i think there's far too many different people in that country reading it and many will and many won't but i think it just feels a little bit like they very very consciously just retooled a, 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 a genuine 2000 e story to the extent whereby there's, there's a panel uh, in issue 12 on uh, towards the end where these enforcers um who are the, the police in the big city they cast a shadow over somebody left alone it's like two or three pages from the end i think it is and they are quite literally shown as a shadow of the judges from mega city one they're not they're not being subtle in in their allusions to you know quote unquote a typical 2000 ad story so, I mean, it's interesting. Um, as you say, they may have been just trying to retool 2000 AD to make it work for an American audience. You know, it's set in the big city or in big city, which is, you could see, as you say, as a very close parallel to Mega City uh, or Mega City One. Um, I mean, about the writing of it, what do you think are the similarities and then the dissimilarities about the world of Mega City One? It does a whole load of very, very, very Mega City One, and, and and also just Wagner and Grant things you know, to the extent where they've even got a, a song and dance number at, at one point, or certainly a song in there again in that that, that typical style. But also, I mean, one of my favourite bits is, or one of the favourite things that it does, is it it takes that idea of a freak TV show. And it, it puts these characters in, and you know, and it has the TV announcer in the way that that uh, you see so often in Mega City One. It, 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 so there's this character called Wolfman Coitz who tries to catch a bullet in his teeth, and that ends badly. There's another character called Ed uh, Boop who is literally a human leg with a head and his knee, just utterly typically 2000 AD stuff. But then, both where both those characters are exposed, it also shows some of the similarities that that you know this this scene of 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 in in a show called Fozzie's Fabulous Freak Show, uh, where Wolfman tries to attempt to catch a bullet in his teeth, and you know, without giving too much because it's not a major plot point, um, doesn't and gets shot through the head. That takes three pages. So it luxuriates because each issue is about 28 pages long. It's even longer than a typical uh, US superhero comic. And it luxuriates in the space and time it's got. And it's quite interesting when I was reading it as a, you know, someone who's grown up reading the five, six page, 2000 stories all my life. You almost do little mental edits in your head of, oh, I bet, you know, Wagner and Grant would have done that in a page. And it enjoys the space it's got, which doesn't make it better or worse. It just makes it a really interesting read. It, 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 it allows um, speeches to be made. So there's, a, there's a big scene in, in issue seven where the story takes a bit of a turn, where, again, without going into too much detail, because there are some pretty major spoilers, Kane starts making a, a speech to expose the villains of the piece. And um, her speech goes on for for four five six pages in a way in for example something like letter to a democrat it, that would have been the whole story that whole issue you know would have been told in four five six pages in 2000 ad and yet in issue seven it's allowed to luxuriate over 27 pages there's more words not for better or worse it's just not as tight as you would typically see from from writers of of, of that nature or from from wagner or grant specifically but uh, on the flip side of that, it, it has the setting, the characters and, and the villains, when we talk a little bit, a bit more about the villains, are just utterly 2000 AD in, in every respect. Um, I think the, the the difference, one of the key differences is, 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 I think, a 
again, that angle that we've spoken of is is that whereas 2000 AD is able to have the sort of the view from the villain's perspective. So, well, I say villain, but you know, it, it takes the view of the the uh, the the rulers of the dystopian society, so the judges. Here, it, it, it's retooled so that it's it's the heroes of the piece that, that drives the story. The rebels, the they're, they're, they're essentially superheroes that, that drive it forward. Um, they're not you know caped clad or anything like that but they are essentially super powered um characters that are, that are, are driving it forward. so there's, there's those sort of structural and and character differences but really it, it, it's it's much more allowing that space and time for for different scenes to develop uh, a little more openly and the 12 issue maxi series as you say i think that was obviously it was a thing at the time dc yeah. comics were certainly trying it I do remember the Legion of Superheroes in the in the Baxter paper, now that you mention it as well. I did get those. I remember mm. that being, although the paper was very glossy, the story was very dark in that as well, unusually. Yes. Yeah. I think dark, yeah. darkness was around in the second half of the 80s in comics. Well, yeah, even things like the Teen Titans, they had that whole, you know, that went onto the Baxter series and it had that whole, what's the name, Trigon or whatever Trigon, it was. Yeah, yeah. It came to, yeah taking over New Father, York and, yeah. yeah. All of that sort of sort of that bleak and Green Arrow specifically got really edgy when Mike Grell took over after Longbow Hunters, and again that was one of this this idea that you'd you'd, you'd put these stories onto this this lovely slightly better paper. It, it does last better actually, to be fair, and you'd take it up a notch in terms of its contents. I doubt very much. Well, to be fair, Green Arrow got to some pretty dark places, but I doubt very much many of them go quite as dark as as, as this particular series goes to because it it, it does very quickly uh, as, as early as issue three i think it's when they get they travel to the moon to see what's happening there it does take it to some pretty pretty grim and unpleasant revelations about what is being done to the mutants that are exported there um so can we say without giving too many spoilers can we say that the the mutants of big city are promised uh, jobs and better living conditions on the moon, but actually something much, much worse is happening to them there. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's all a big, um, uh, what's the word, a big sort of like hidden plot or conspiracy, basically. It's a con- uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course... There's, the, a, there's a corporation called... It, 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 it's laid out by this... this, this, this the, 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 the chief baddies appears to be this character called Boss Angel who works for the, the Strigon Corporation. And he's got this mysterious supercomputer behind him called Orcom who um, who orchestrates uh, a lot of what happens. But the actual conspiracy theory is exposed to be true as to the terrible fate of the mutants who are sent to the moon. And it's genuinely horrible. <laughs> it, it, it does allude to some pretty pretty unpleasant stuff. Yes, and I mean, without wanting to give it away, they sort of hint at a, um, uh, I don't know, a dark conspiracy story that sort of, in a way, that's haunted humanity for centuries and yeah. is still going on today. But also, as you say, it's very, you know, it's very current in a way with people being deported yeah. and promised better opportunities on a, you know, a distant colony. Um, and actually, it's not going to be at all what is promised um, yeah, fascinating. Are, are Wagner and Grant enjoying the extra space of 12 issues of 28 pages per issue, do you think? 
they, they certainly, I mean, I imagine the paycheck's better. Yes. <laughs> so I imagine, given how honest they are about, about that side of things, I'm, I'm sure they were, they, were, they were enjoying that. They seem to be, although what I do notice around issue seven, there's almost like a change in tack. And I don't know if that was some sort of editorial decision, but you almost got the, the impression they almost wind down. They wind down the main story. The main theme still continue through, but they, they have this big speech. Um, in this TV studio, which which exposes a lot of, of of what's been driving the adventure up to that point, and a lot of our main characters up to that point are quite brutally sidelined. Uh, I mean, I, 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 it is a spoiler, but I think we have to say that one of the characters ends up in a in a bucket. In a bucket, uh, yes. literally, his his body falls apart. Uh, this is a character who's who's immortal, who can't die. His body literally disintegrates. But he's still unable to die, and so you know his 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 um, one of the other characters, uh, a BD Rickenbacker, literally scoops him up, puts him in a bucket, um, which he at various stages feeds sausages to and smacks people in the face with. It is it becomes a much more <laughs> slightly more com- comedic, it's in, in very very dark humour, and 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 R.D. Radenbacher is the only character from that point for a, a two or three good issues who carries forward and he recruits some ex-over sports uh, players called Killer and the Prof. And it, it seems to take a slight a diversion. Now, whether that's because Wagner and Grant got bored of what they were doing, whether they always planned it, I don't, I don't know. But you do feel like they, they, they were telling this story in a much more traditional fashion, a traditional American fashion, with a 2000 AD underpinning it. Um, and then they got, bored with that and wanted to spin it off in a slightly different direction it became far more comedic that's where you get your song and dance number but the humor doesn't at any point stop being ridiculously dark as i'm I'm sure we'll talk about again when we return to some of the um some of the ways that that it deals with issues that we think about differently now so they, they they take the heroes the this boss angel goes to a place called suicide park and things that when I'm reading it, I just wash over me if I'm brutally honest. But Suicide Park is a, a park that encourages people to give up on their worthless lives and, and, and commit suicide in, in a in a theme park environment. Astonishingly 2000 AD. But something that, that reading it now, I say I read it and I'm not worried about it. I'm not offended by it. But you do you do think about the fact that as, as we are an aging audience uh, or I am an aging audience. I, I shouldn't speak to Raymond, but I know he's similar age to myself so hopefully oh, won't be too yeah. offended if i if i label him <laughs> as aging audience Not at all. but we it, it, and as you sort of said earlier we have to give content warning about the fact that there's an awful lot of of allusions to suicide and not just with uh yancy quig it, 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 there's other characters uh and other situations that deal an awful lot with suicide and we just got a bit more open-minded that some people will have greater sensitivities quite rightly uh about the way that suicide is is handled comedically uh, in this comic doesn't worry me in the slightest but i have to be open-minded enough to accept the fact that it will upset some people because it does treat suicide very lightly and very offhand and, and makes a joke of it in a way that you know we in our generation were, were immersed in mm. but that's the level of the the depth of the darkness of the humor it never stops being incredibly dark and the sort of in a way, they sort of drop in these little snippets about life in big city, about the fact that uh, there's enforced yes. euthanasia for the sort of the masses at age sixty, but there's in constant encouragements for people to do it earlier. 
um, <laughs> you know, and sort of solve the problems of overpopulation. Sterilization is mentioned, um, as you say, there's the sort of suicide theme parks, there's the game shows, there's the, I mean, B.D. Rickenbacker is retired from a future sport called Slaughter Bowl, which I think is several yeah. years before a strip called Slaughter before Bowl. Summer turns, Offensive. Yes, it turns <laughs> up in the Summer Offensive. Yeah, I mean, it, there is a lot of sort of background details in a way in Big City, which they work in and sort of, yeah. uh, you know... Um, it all sort of fills this sort of... I've been listening to a science fiction podcast doing their series on dystopian films, and this is a very dystopian big city, you know, as dystopian as Mega City 1, if not worse, in fact. Yes. You'd, 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 unbelievable. You'd probably argue it, it, it's worse, and, and bad as the judges are, appalling things that they do. The the enforcers and, and the corporations in, in big city manage to find ways to be even more horrendous they, they do truly you know brutal horrible things um to the people that are sent to the moon you know you know shocking and, and to their own citizens and back to that way that the, the of how wagner and grant are sort of right in a typical way lots of that backfill that you were talking about is done through newscasters and, and and tv presentations and interviews with people in the way that you often see uh Mega City One filled out and explored and, and investigated. You know, they do love that that sense of that TV commentary on the world as a way of, of, of opening that world up to the reader um, in a in a very sort of it's it's inc- we're talking about this horrible dark comic, but it's not. It's funny. <laughs> it is throughout it all. It bounces along with this real zest and energy. And you know, when I say that, that it seems like they may have got bored with the with that that story in issue seven, when there's a bit of a pivot and in, in how it goes, it doesn't come across in the reading. I should point out, it, it, it's not like you know, it, it's not like City of the Dam where you can almost feel it as a reader that they're, they're losing interest in it. it. It's always got this real life zest. This beautifully grim humor this it, i mean it's it, it's pitch black dark uh in terms of the humor that it it puts across so yeah when i'm talking about it being this grim it, it, it's never not entertaining which i i, I worry spends a horrible amount about me and, and what i found entertaining and, and, and enjoyable given quite how dark some of the humor can be but it it, it always is that it always is entertaining it even though it's got more of the space it, it, it still has a sense of pace to it i felt it still drives forward even though it luxuriates in its extra page count it's still got a real sense of pace and drive that a 2000d story would have it's just it has that in a slightly looser format and i'm i'm going to mention the cover to issue nine in terms yes. of the dark humor and the 2000d humor uh, you've mentioned that uh, the character queeg ends up basically as a head in a bucket and then B.D. Rickenbacker, who's, who looks a lot like Mean Machine, he's, let's say, he's probably had one, two, or several too many blows to the head during his Slaughter Bowl career, yep. so he's a little bit impaired. But he's he's remarkably tender in looking after Queeg in the bucket, although he does, as you say, swing the bucket as a weapon. And the, front, the, the tagline on the front is, back off, Boss Angel, B.D. and his bucket of Queeg are coming through. And he's very 2000 AD in a way, isn't it? Well, it it is absolutely that. I don't think I've ever read an American comic that feels quite so 2008. I mean, I'm sure there are, don't get me wrong. But but also it does that beautiful thing that that Wagner and and, and Grant are able to do is, and I'm, I'm I'll come back to this when we talk about um I'm not giving away secrets saying I've picked some Grail pages about that tenderness as well 
between Rickenbacker and and, and Quig, because one of my, my my choices is actually a page that that really exemplifies that, and they've got that brilliant way of 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 having those tender moments, having those bits of of where you you you, you feel really empathy and, and and connection with the characters, and um, particularly in the case of those two, that, that that they have this there's this page which I'll talk about in more detail later, where they really bond and it's it's a really nice powerful moment. This, this, this Rickenback occurs, this bucket of of disembodied immortal man. But then he also, you know, is quite happy to smack someone in the face with said bucket at the point of necessity. And, you know, people get hit with rope detached robotic arms and, you know, there's there's car chases and there's there's explosions and suicide world in itself, this this horrible grim place feels incredibly like something you'd find in the cursed earth. Or probably in Mega City One itself, but you know, in the, you know, in the story, the cursed earth, where they explore all these these really perverse and distorted uh, exaggerations society, and so yeah, it's, it's just a, more and more examples of how it feels so incredibly 2000 AD, um, and yet at the same time has those nice little quirks that, that twist it away from that as well to make it feel a little bit different. And I suppose I'm just thinking of this while we're talking, but of course. It now makes me think about the mutants uh, and the mutant problem in Mega City One, where of course the judges uh, they didn't deport them to the moon, but they certainly sent them outside the, to the cursed Earth to live in camps. Um, something that Dread has as, since, as a workforce as well. Yeah, to sort of, yeah. As it, you know, Dread has since had to wrestle with and come to realise was a wrong decision. Uh, so it's interesting here they're off, they're being sent off to the moon for something terrible to happen to them. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. It is. You know, it's the most 2000 AD DC comic I've come across, I think. Um, it yeah. just does it feel like... so. Yeah, it does feel like a DC, um, a 2000 AD strip running in a 12-issue maxi-series from DC in 87, 88, uh, with the slightly better paper. Okay, well, let's turn to the artwork for a moment. Let's get away from some of the dark yes. stuff um, and turn to the artwork. Uh, Cam Kennedy, now, of course... One of the differences between British comic book and American comic book is the sort of separation of pencils and inks. So here, unusually, um, for me at least, is we've got Cam Kennedy inked by somebody else, uh, Steve Montana. What did you think, make of the artwork? It, it, I mean, it, Cam Kennedy, you know, sings through. So so even though it's inked by someone, the inking is is nice. I, 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 I kind of assume the reason it's inked by someone else is because he's churning out, it, came, it, it doesn't miss a deadline, it comes out every month and it's 28 pages. So my, my working assumption is is that they simply have to have someone ink him from a, from a time point of view. But what having what having the, 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 the inker whose name, Montana, uh, Montano, sorry, um, Steve Montano, was it? Steve Montano, uh, yeah. It, yeah, it, it's slightly... As well as have, I'm assuming that that need for just simply churning out these 28 pages a month, but it also slightly off uh, softens Cam Kennedy's sort of rough, caustic the edges to his artwork. It, it's still so distinctly Cam Kennedy, but it, it it softens that line a little bit. Doesn't for me massively reduce it. For people who've read, who remember or may not remember the the Judge Dredd strip, the Taxidermist. Yes, that was inked by Mike Collins. And it, it, for me, it reminds me a little bit of that. It, it, it's it's so absolutely Cam Kennedy, but it does have that slightly softer uh, edge to the line. It isn't quite as dynamic. You know, it, we're talking thin margins here. I think I think the, the inker does a pretty good job. To be fair, the colouring you could argue 
Yeah, I, I don't know again <laughs> if like the processors at the time is 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 slightly flat and it kills some of the. It's quite dark, and they try to make it as dark as some of the themes in the story. But I kind of don't think it needs that. I think it wants to go much more for the energy of the re- of the way the story is delivered, and it, it kind of drags the art down a little bit. I'd suggest. But I know they did this thing about getting Incas to ink over people that were used to seeing ink in themselves. So I know in is it Camelot three thousand, the one where Brian Bolland did. Yes. Um, Bruce Patterson uh, inked him on that, and I found that a much more challenging change in style um i think because of of, of probably bolland's you know, absolute precision in his inking i thought bruce patterson just just i mean understandably just can't, couldn't quite match that and i think here it's a lot more sympathetic thinking over over cam kennedy's uh pencils and you know cam kennedy's page layout design and and, and all of that is just so strong the dynamics of his, his figures and their movement and the action, again, so strong that, that you know, someone else is inking it, but it doesn't lose any of that energy. And just that absolutely beautiful, um, well, sort of grimly beautiful style that Cam Kennedy has. It, it's just so distinctly Cam Kennedy. So, I, I, you know, yeah, you'd rather see Cam ink himself, but if you're going to get someone to ink Cam and Kennedy, they don't do a bad job of it in my mind. It's instantly recognisable as Cam Kennedy, I thought. Instantly recognisable as, you know, yeah. the Cam Kennedy we know and love. I think you're quite right what you say about the inking. It's very subtle. It does take away some of his slightly scratchy edges in his own work. You've got those, you know, what I, I'm now recognising as a signature Cam Kennedy floating head when it comes to doing some sort of um, a little bit of monologue, you know, a character's got to deliver some monologue to us. You get a floating head that's very sort of recognisable. I've now found that panel in the issue 12 at the bottom of a yes. page where... Sorry, should... yeah. No, it's a great panel. It's just after yeah. um, a cue for a new euthanasia clinic and then you see this one character yes. kneeling and the shadows of the enforcers. And I don't know how I noticed, didn't notice it before. Maybe I'm just so used to seeing... Cam Kennedy Judge Dredd, yeah. you know, because they <laughs> yeah. are quite clearly the shadows of Mega City Judges, aren't they? They absolutely are. Yeah. Uh, and the buildings, to be fair, the building design across across the whole piece as well is feels very much like a Cam Kennedy Mega City One. I think it's it, it's worth saying. It's not subtle in its allusions to Mega City One at all. And and Cam Kennedy's art sort of just sings in doing that. It, it absolutely does shine through and, and, and carries that forward and again gives it that real two thousand eight feel. Cam Kennedy's not a sort of a neat, clean American that's sorry, that's unfair. You know, when I say American artist, I mean the stereotypical image of an American mainstream artist. He's not that. He's you know he's rugged he's strong his you know his you know it's what you say about the, the characteristic photos you have when i think of cam kennedy and we'll talk about this again when we talk about grail pages i think of those gritted teeth grimaces <laughs> right anybody doing anything is doing it through gritted teeth and you know they exude that anger and that passion and that you know that that fierceness through through the most exquisitely rendered gritted teeth through through house um, yeah much of cam kennedy's work and so I think all of that still remains in the artwork, and it, it, it adds to that sense that this is a, a 2000 D story told out of its out of house, so to speak. I just mentioned him in terms of his character designs. I mean, obviously we've got the outcasts themselves. We've got uh, BD, who looks very much like um, Mean Machine. But there's also we haven't mentioned them yet. There's a couple of enforcers yes. who are on the trail of the outcasts, set on the trail of the outcasts, so like contract. Uh, killers, as it were. Are they the Satan brothers? The Satan brothers, Ron and Larry Satan. Um, <laughs> Given their full names, and uh, they're fantastic. And, and actually, I, 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 
they are brilliant. They are they are my two favourite characters. So when we again, I'll, I'll come back to that when we talk about Grail pages. And my choices behind those, they, they they remind me very much again of, of another couple, I suppose, of two Fazley characters, um, Brandon Blast from Rogue Trooper. Again, we've got that Cam Kennedy oh, yes. link there, yeah. but they have that sort of relationship. But they really remind me, without the sort of the um, the. the the sexuality overtones, but of, of Mr. Kid and Mr. I think they're meant to be based on the, the Blues Brothers, but who they remind me of is Mr. Kid and Mr. Wint in Diamonds of Forever. Diamonds of Forever. They've got that sort of that backwards and forwards between them finishing the same lines and things like that that that, that really remind me of those two characters. It, they are those lovely pairing of two enforcers. I, I think visually probably based on the Blues Brothers and, and hence the Satan Brothers. Um but they are they are the two best characters in in, in the comic in my mind in, in in the whole series. I think they're absolutely absolutely fantastic. Um, the dry, the sardonic, the interplay between them is just just great. Fantastic, and horrible, and, and horrible. horrible. And then towards the end of the series, they get a dog as well. They do <laughs> a very strange shit that we should point out again. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say because it gets revealed relatively early that they're, they're robotic and they also have a robotic dog, but it looks the least robotic dog I've ever seen. Um, and it it looks, yeah, you know, can, can I be vulgar? It yeah. looks a, a bit like a, a pile of poo running it around. Does. It's a little um, poo dog wearing a pork pie hat, yeah, <laughs> little poo robot yes. dog. <laughs> And at that point, having said that sentence, you realise you are talking about a 2008 story, really, because where else could you say that? Yeah, what else could you say that about? You know, I'm going to go back to the colours for a while, because I, I found that mm. the most disappointing aspect for me, yeah. is that I didn't like the colours on this. I thought they were very... Uh, I think I put this in our notes. I thought they were very flat and strangely uh, muted on this paper. And, you know, this, the paper is, as you say, it's better than the pulps, um, but it's not quite up to the Baxter standard. And it just all, I thought it all looked a bit strange and slightly subdued in a way. Not an awful lot of contrast in the colours. Well, it's funny to you about not a lot of contrast. And yet, but at times, some of the colours seem to clash. Um, there's this bit where the colour the color tones and palette. So again, if I'm looking at issue seven, uh, say page just i pick one at relative random page 13 so you've got a lot of sort of grays and blues and, and background colors and this this vivid yellow shirt on the tv presenter I'll, I'll give you a second to find it obviously yeah um and so so the the the, the, the overriding palette pulls everything back and makes it flat and, and yet you've got this 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 pop of yellow which far from actually making the page pop actually just makes it feel a bit unbalanced in some ways and it, yeah. it just yeah i think you're you know so so i think the, the, the there is there's a the, where the contrasts aren't used well they don't add to the storytelling they don't add to atmosphere they just they 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 the, the jarring i found them um in many ways, they, they, they don't make the... You know, you can have muted colours and it can add to atmosphere. It can make something feel grim and gritty and dark. And that might have worked in this strip. Or you can go the other extreme, I'd say, and, and go with the energy of the strip and give it a bit more pep and zip. It, it's dark enough in its themes and its tones and its humour to not need to be pulled back by the colours as well. So, yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. The colours are... I just wonder if they'd got... I mean, obviously, he was still probably busy colouring Watchmen, but if they'd got somebody like John Higgins, you know, whether that would have made a difference. fantastic choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, he was doing everything um, at the time. He was doing Killing Joke, and he was doing Watchmen, and 
He was too yeah, busy. He was probably just too busy. And he was, of course, doing his own artwork at the time. He, exactly. You know, John yeah. Higgins, of course, is such a, a fantastic artist in his own right. Um, I saw an exhibition. This is complete tangents. In Liverpool, not that long ago, he had an exhibition in Liverpool. And when you see his, his, his art uh, in the flesh, I'm not lucky enough to earn a, a, a John Higgins page. But when you see his art in the flesh, his, the colours are you know, you can see why he was chosen to colour things like the Watchmen and, and, and the, the uh, and Killing Joke. And we can have that whole debate about whether he'd ever been recolored in the Killing Joke and, and that sort of stuff. But I love his colours and I think I think it's an ex it's an absolute spot on choice for what would have made this series work even better. Okay, I mean, it's it's interesting, as you say. I mean, you know, as I say, we can instantly recognise Cam Kennedy and it's not spoiled by the inking at all. It's very sympathetic inking. Uh yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, maybe if it had been, you know, obviously a DC comic, I don't think they would do any black and whites. They even coloured V for Vendetta about this time as well, didn't they? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. That that didn't necessarily work too well. <laughs> Everybody was a 12-issue maxi-series at this time. Um, yes. <laughs> where would it was fi- the place to be. <laughs> where would you find your favourite Cam Kennedy art, just out of interest? My, my personal favourite Cam Kennedy art? Yes. Oh, that's a... Big, big, difficult question. F- fully enough, I've just finished rereading uh, Light and Darkness War. Oh, right. Which someone yes. mentioned in a podcast that I, I think it might have been a podcast from a while ago. That I, li- I listened to, I re-listened to relatively recently, and his coloured art there is is sensational. I don't think it's, for me it's not the best of his his work, but the art is sensational. He did some fantastic colour work in some of those early Star Wars universe comics. He did. He did. Uh, was it called the um, Dark Empire has made some wonderful work yes. there. But for me, there's a period of funny going back to when I started reading 2008 for my sort of big run, around sort of 400 to 500, there's a period where Cam Kennedy, probably the predominant artist on Dread at that point. And for me, that's his peak. I, I do love some of the stuff he's done in battle as well, actually. I should probably allude, I mention that as well. He did some wonderful stuff in battle. But yeah, that period of sort of 400 to 500 Judge Dread stuff when he's doing things like. I'm going to mention it in a wee bit. The Big Sleep, uh, there's the uh, the Samurai story. There's a, there's a whole host of ones that he does um, during that period. And I think for me, that's my favourite candy, probably due to that fact of that's when I got introduced to his work. And of course, you always have that little personal bias of, of, of what you see first, defining what you expect from that particular art or series or whatever. How about yourself? Which are your favourite Cam well, Kennedy bits. I'm, I'm just thinking that I, it's out of reach on the shelf. I think, talking about battle, I think Garth Ennis, when he was on, mentioned that Cam Kennedy did, is it Fighting Man he did the art Fighting for? Man. Yeah, yeah. And it's just yeah. out of reach. Strangely enough, when I think of uh, comic book representation of Boba Fett, I think of Cam Kennedy. Yes. I've, got some, I've got some great yeah. Cam Kennedy images of, on my phone of that, of his Star Wars stuff. But yeah, it's just his Judge Dread, basically, isn't it? Judge Dread. Although I think it was Nathan Duck who mentioned the Light and Darkness War, and nobody's picked it yet for the podcast. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> just throw that out there. Uh, it, 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 uh, don't get me because I'm not a massive fan. <laughs> no, but somebody somebody I, should pick it and come on and talk about it because I oh absolutely should. Well, Nathan Nathan loved it, didn't he? As a yeah, recall. I think so. Yes, um, get him back on because you know, he he was really infused about it, and it would be lovely to hear him talk about about something like that because it, it's a very interesting read. I absolutely wouldn't deny that. 
Okay, well, before I ask you to pick some Cam Kennedy pages or covers, let's talk about the 12 issues and some favourite moments or episodes or characters that stood out to you. Anything you wanted to mention from Outcasts? I've covered most of my favourite bits. Funnily enough, the Outcasts themselves, they're probably some of my least the least interesting bits. I think one bit we haven't really talked a great deal about is um, the mysterious background computer Orcom uh, and some of the shenanigans he gets up to is quite interesting. It, it, I quite like that, but my favourite characters that we actually out I've, I've mentioned this already are the Satan brothers. I think any scene with them in is just elevated by their presence. But I also love those other bits that I've mentioned about these sort of these TV show mutants in the 2000 East sense as well. We should probably mention most of the mutants aren't glamorous, lovely people. There's literally this character called Egg Boop, Ed Boop, who is a human leg and he spends this very there's a issue seven which i keep alluding to has this very serious scene where there's this great speech and egg boot being a human leg uh, gets knocked over at one point and spends three or four pages just trying to get back up onto his single foot to get around and there's bits like that which just you've got this really it, it's classic wagner and grant you've got this really serious important story shift happening and you've got this human leg trying to elevate himself uh, into a standing position because you know he has literally no arms so bits like that are my favorites the bits that where they take a 2000 trope you know the 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 freak tv show the 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 mutant with incredibly distorted features and they just run wild with it they absolutely you know run to the hills and have such fun with it and as i say yeah anything with the satan brothers in it's just immediately they do some very nice action sequences and battle sequences i should say as well the action is is really nicely paced i think again this is an advantage of the space and time they've got some of the action sequences feel much more choreographed for want of a better way of putting it than it would in 2000 AD so there's a there's a, a really exciting um, clash in issue 6 is it yeah issue 6 between the outcasts and the, the Satan brothers um, and that just feels sort of really choreographed in the way that I don't know somebody like Chris Claremont was always very good at doing um, in the X-Men it just feels like a really sort of well thought through, well paced, exciting bit of, of comic book combat. I mean, obviously it's ridiculous and you literally get people being hit with dismembered arms and things like that during that. But it is just incredibly good fun. So it, it's those sorts of bits. Anything with the Satan Brothers, immediately elevated. Yeah. I was I was less interested in Kane, Salinger and Shock from the Outcasts. Yes. Although the episode yeah. you mentioned in issue seven, that's where Kane, Salinger interrupts the broadcast to, to to make the public announcement about what's really going on on the moon. But as you say, the yeah. poor chap in the background just trying constantly to get up off the floor and everybody's ignoring him, which is uh, yeah. so very <laughs> too What's going on? Yeah. People are distracted. <laughs> Um, however, I mean, you know, like the Satan Brothers, but I, I mean, as you can gather, I liked BD and Queeg, particularly when they were yeah. together as a strangely sort of sympathetic pairing. You know, one's a slightly damaged ex slaughter bowl player, and the other one's a head in a bucket. I and mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> uh, so. Again, things that you would never see, you, you would think you would never say anywhere other than 2008, but in this case, we have got things that you would only ever expect to hear said about a 2000 East strip. And yeah, I, I do think the, the bits with um, Quincy, sorry, Yancey Quaig as, as the as bucket boy, yeah. uh, just genius. Just, just, just it, it takes to such an extreme. 
And there's a certain, I mean, there's a certain, you know, we've said it deals with some dark stuff. It deals with suicidal ideation. It deals with all this sort of enforced uh, euthanasia and suicide going on. But the sort of subject of Queeg throughout the 12 issues, I thought was handled with a certain amount of sort of sympathy um, and tenderness in a way about this character who's just lived too long and just wants to end it all. And his sort of deal with Kane Salinger is that she will help him end it if, you know, she gets, yeah. she achieves her aims. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was great stuff in this uh, this series. And there's a moment, I mean, we don't want to say too much, but right at the end, which is, gives a real yeah. satisfying resolution to that as well. It, it, it's dealt with, I, I wouldn't say sensitively, it's not a sensitive comic, but it's dealt with well. It's dealt yeah. with, you know, with, 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 it's not blunt. It's not entirely blunt in the way it, it deals with it, except when the bucket is being used to smack enforcers in the face. So you've got 12 issues. Uh, you've got Wagner, Grant and Kennedy with a great deal of space to tell their story, uh, to have some wonderful background details, some wonderful characters, some wonderful antagonists and protagonists. Um, let's play Grail pages and Grail covers. Give you all of this original yes. artwork. Uh, and there's a lot of it. Yeah, there's a lot of it to pick up, pick from. And I've I've forgotten to do my usual due diligence and look on comic art fans for this artwork to see if it's out there. But what are you going to pick to put in your okay. um, in your Grail gallery? Bear with me, because as you could imagine, this is quite a challenging. Because there's, there's, there's a lot, absolutely yes. fantastic stuff. So I picked, I picked one cover just by way of, of get because there's three itches that I, I wanted to scratch. One, I had to have a Cam Kennedy grimace, right? And so that, that's what led me to my cover, was which was the cover of issue one, just simply because it has got it, its focal point is again that sort of slightly disembodied head in the background with 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 a. A beautiful Cam Candy grimace, and you've got your four main protagonists running along, but it's much more like that grimace in on the Enforcer. I very nearly went for issue nine, the one you've mentioned, just yes. because it's got it's got someone being hit with a man in a bucket. Yeah, <laughs> which again you don't see very often, uh, not often enough, I'd say. Um, but now I thought I think issue one just because it scratches itches, which allows me to pick some other pages in interior pages. I've talked How about, about yourself. Instant, what well, I've talked about instantly recognisable. The face in the background on the cover of issue one is instantly Cam Kennedy, isn't it? You know, isn't it? It, it, it is, is exactly that. Yeah, it is exactly that. So yeah, great. We'll grant you that cover. Um, I'm really torn for my cover between um, a bucket of Queeg with BD on cover nine. I have to have a. Slight... If you had the text, you'd go for that, wouldn't you? If you had the, would. the, the 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 yeah, if it was pasted up. Well, I always liked I always liked to have the lettering and yeah. you know, to have text on a cover, you know, a cover image or a title image. I, yeah. I do have a slight thing about bra- you know brains in a jar. Um, you know, <laughs> having been a doctor and a sort of Hammer Horror fan, I've always got a thing about brains in a jar. So I might. You said that a little bit too close together. You shouldn't allude to that you're a doctor and you've got a thing of brains in the jar. I think maybe just in natural conversation, detach the two a little bit more. May, may just may unsettle people a little less. So let me just say the cover of issue 12 there's a brain in a jar and a head in a bucket. Um, yes. <laughs> and. <laughs> When did you last think you were going to say that sentence? <laughs> <laughs> and I think I might be tempted to go for issue 12 for me. So it's the mm. first issue for me, the la- uh, for you rather, the last issue for me. Let's go to interior pages, Colin. What are you yeah. going to have? 
Okay, again. So th- there was a page in issue four, page five, that I- I'm not going to pick, but I did want to just call out. So it's issue, yeah, page, issue four, page five, because that page um, back, oh no, issue, it's not issue, f- issue, oh, I've got this wrong. Issue four, page five, mention 11, sorry, it's mention 11. It's page 11 that I'm talking about. I do. Okay. Because that page, you know, we talk about loving Cam Kennedy's period on Dread between 400 and 500. Really reminds me of a lot of the imagery from uh, one one of my favourite strips from that period called The Big Sleep. It reminds me of, of, of the shot Malone, I think he was called Assassin in that one. But I'm not going for that. There's a temptation to go for a picture in issue six where R.D. Rattenbacker smacks one of the um, Satan Brothers with a, the Satan Brothers' own arm just because of the preposterousness of that but i'm actually going to go i've picked two if you'll bear with me of course issue five issue five page 27 so i'll let you find that and the reason i've gone for this is even though it's not the introduction to the satan brothers it the storytelling is so nice in the way it does introduce them into that scene so you've got ridden back coming into a room and you see uh, the backs of of the Satan brothers, and 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 and, and you know, Rinback is sort of telling them, you know, what, what are you doing in my pop's place? And then you see their hands, and it reveals their face. And they just say, "I'm Ron, and this is Larry." Charmed, and it's it's just that lovely way that they're introduced throughout that page. It's a lovely bit of storytelling, has a bit of a uh, a Cam Kennedy grimace, not quite the same because he's got slightly fanged teeth, uh, Rinbacker. But it, I just love that page. I think it's just an absolutely fantastic bit of storytelling. So I'm taking that one as my, I've got to have the Satan Brothers page. And if I may be incredibly cheeky, back to another thing that we've talked about already, there's issue eight, page 15. So we were talking about the tenderness in the relationship between Riddenbacker and um, Queen in a Bucket. And so you've got this absolutely lovely um, contrast between this domesticated scene of this, as you said, head drunk punched too many times ridden backer cooking breakfast um and feeding this this fried english breakfast to this man in a bucket but there's a real tenderness to it there's this real sort of sadness to bd's eyes he looks sort of dully he looks dull and 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 not smart but there's a sadness and the tenderness to that scene which just given how preposterous it is to say this this metal armed man is feeding a head in a bucket sausage and eggs, and yet it still conveys this this real sort of tenderness of, in, in their relationship. Wonderful, and I just think that contrast is is absolutely fantastic and speaks so much about what Wagner and Grant do so well. They take the preposterous and inject some humanity into it really well. So yes, if I may, I would take uh, issue eight, page fifteen. Excellent. Well, we'll grant you both of those interior pages and your cover, and I'll post all the images when this episode comes out. You have done well. That's great. (laughs) Absolutely fantastic stuff. Um, Just going to turn you back to issue six for a moment. Is it issue Issue six? six, No, issue five. Here we are. Issue five. Issue five. Because I'm just going to mention, not a grail page, but just to mention that at the back of issue five, there's a letters page. And on the letters page is a letter from a certain Jim Campbell. And I checked. Oh, I, I, you know, I. Yeah. I did check, and it is Jim Campbell, the letterer, has been on this podcast, has yep. been uh, regular on the forums as well. And I did ask him, and he said, Yeah, that is me. I wrote to them. Yeah. And he's a lovely man if you ever meet him. I don't know if you've ever met Jim, but I've met him at a convention a couple of times. He's an absolute gentleman. Um, yeah. 
There um, you go. The um, world's friendliest golf. And yes, that's right. The world's friendliest golf. And that business was the day when the big two would um, literally dox you if you sent a letter in because they would publish your address. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's very true. So um, I, I'm assuming Jim's moved since then. Yes, um, with his his now stellar career uh, lettering for for all and sundry, and as he says in the forum, including PJ Holden. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so that, that, that's a, a very good. I, I, I had spotted that, and I completely slipped my mind as well. So fantastic stuff from Outcast. Twelve issues. We're going to give you the cover of issue one. We're going to give you those two interior pages you've mentioned. Uh, they become yours. Have you got an interior page you're after, or I hadn't? I hadn't actually picked an interior page. I'd look, just stuck with the covers. But I might take yeah. now that you've drawn my attention to it. I might take that panel, that single panel with the shadows of the judges. Uh, the judges, the it's wall. great, yeah. isn't it? I would. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a moment between BD and Queeg uh, somewhere along the line um, that yeah. I might be interested in as well. But yeah. I shall have to look when this episode comes out on comic art fans and see if there is, if this artwork exists. Um, people I, have got it. I have seen little bits on eBay every so often pop up. They, they, right. they are out there. It is because it is somewhere on my one day I will get list. Um, gosh knows when that will ever be in. Because I imagine they go for quite a lot now. Um, but there is, there is a little bit of art out there from this. I have seen them on occasion. So, fantastic stuff. Uh, God bless Cam Kennedy. We know he's not been terribly well recently, but I hope he's feeling better now. And, yeah, uh, yeah, what a wonderful collection of arts. Now, we're going to say, unusually for the book club, uh, the 12 issues of Outcasts, as far as we can tell, has never been collected either in trade or digitally. I don't think it's available digitally anywhere. I mean, I'm sure it's available. available I I, I had a, a look and I couldn't find it anywhere available right. yeah i should say legally yeah yeah so you're gonna to have to go to ebay to chase down the issues to read this uh, terrific series from these uh yep. 2000 ad sort of um masters and i mean any idea but not too why? hard to track down are they they're not too they're not too hard to get hold <laughs> yeah. of but why is it not being collected you you have to wonder i mean there was there was the shift in um because one of the things I'll, I'll talk about very quickly is, is 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 because they are in the comic format, you get these the, the lovely publisher um, notes at the beginning of every issue. So there was it was meanwhile when it was Dick Giordano, and then it switched over to Jeanette Kane. So I don't know if it was just simply a shift in publisher meant there was a shift in what was wanted, what they're putting out. I don't know about the contract as well, whether because some of the contracts I meant that they they lapsed, didn't they? Back to the the creators if if it wasn't you know republished in a period of time so i don't know if that's a factor it may be the content i mean the content as we've said is incredibly dark at times and it may be somebody eventually picked it up and looked at it and went actually you know this is this is <laughs> this is pretty grim should, should, should we be churning this out it, it's strange i mean there's very little you know, from any period of comics these days that you can't pick up in some format or other. And it, it, it's really, really strange. I, I, I had, I did do a quick search to see if I could find anything else about it, and I couldn't. Uh, I really couldn't um, as, as to why it hasn't been picked up and reprinted. I mean, it would be wonderful if Rebellion could pick it up, but I imagine there's all sorts of rights issues um, to be dug through uh, along the way, and, and there must be a reason why it's not been reprinted, and it's just not one that I'm not aware of. 
Yeah, it's a mystery. I'm I'm going to guess that Wooly Russell on Facebook is going to tell me when this episode comes out why it's not been reprinted. Um, I'm ho- obviously hoping to meet John uh, Wagner at Lawless next month in May yes. or you know this month when this episode comes out. Um, so I'm going to ask him. I shall ask him what happened to yeah. Outcasts. Why was it never ever collected? Um, bit of a mystery. We shall try and find out and report back. Did you enjoy it? Because, as you said, you'd not read it before. So, ultimately, did you enjoy it? Did you find it a satisfying read? I thought I thought it was terrific. I had great fun with it. I was yeah. slightly. I did have. I good. struggled with the colours. Um, yes. I would have preferred slightly more. I don't know what it was. I, I, I think possibly John Higgins colouring, but as you say, he was far too busy. Um, I, I thought some of the characters were great. The Satan brothers were fantastic. Um, I loved, as I say, Beady and Queeg as a pairing. Um, yeah, great stuff. I thought it was absolutely terrific. And then the, the sort of parallels between Big City and Mega City One are fascinating. But the fact that they mm. get to put so much more—it's almost like they can, you know, they've managed to put ten or fifteen years of two of two thousand AD stories into these twelve <laughs> issues. The amount of detail they get into the city itself, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, great yeah. stuff. And again, that's that space and timeline things—the breathe and giving it space, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. They had the time. And, of course, then they're going to be off and doing Batman and Detective Comics. And then we've got various other stuff that's going to come up, including yeah. you know, the last the last Americans a couple of years after this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's a, a couple of years left. But, I mean, that is a great great series for anybody who's not read that. Have you covered that? Uh, Have you covered Luke, Last American? No, Luke Williams is going to do The Last American with me at some point. Yeah, he's picked it. That's that's a that's great. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic read. That is that's a, anyway. Sorry, that's a tangent. I'm spinning. No, no, off. that's good. And of course, that did get a reprint um, a year yeah. or so ago, which I've got here as well. Colin, great stuff. Uh, this is the bit where we do guest projects. I mean, you're very active on the forums, particularly running polls and uh, little forum contests. Tell us about those. Yeah. Oh God, well that that was just during during uh, lockdown. A, a lot of people returned to the forum, and, and I just had this thing that when I first joined the forum, there was there was um, God, what was his name now? Um, anyway, one of one of the boards that was that was very you know prominent at the time when I joined was running little little polls. And I thought, well, if we've got all this new life coming in, let's let's give some of that just to sort of try to hook some of that that those those fresh eyes on the forum something to do. And so I just just, just ran up a, a quick poll about I think it was people's favorite artist was the first one, and it it kind of span into a life of its own and, and it's got a little bit of a hand and, and now now I'm in the middle of doing. Um, get a vote on on literally head to head so you pick two series which is your favorite series and it's a fa cup style knockout um we're four months into the second round because it's by far the biggest one i've ever done and it, it's all quite preposterous and it's all quite silly but the real reasons is just to it's it's not really the votes themselves that i think they're put it's just to give people a hook to speak about things that you otherwise might not you know um talk about normally they're great fun to do i love running them doesn't take that much time once you you, you you get ahead of wind behind it and to be fair compared to some of the other you, I mean, you get amazing people on this podcast it's a very small contribution to 2000 fandom but if people are bored and want to have a little question every or two questions normally every day to sort of rack their brain about about whether you prefer zenith or london falling whatever pop along to the forum and and you can see that 
because outside of, of that, I, I'm you get all these these brilliant creators and all these people that run podcasts, and I just read too many comics. I don't <laughs> I don't do fun things. I just read a lot of comics. Um, so there's there's nothing else aside from that. I mean, but, but you know, finishing off decorating the bedroom, that's almost done. At work, I've got to you know launch the well being service onto a new a new um, appointment platform. That's the sort of projects I'm up with. Nothing to do, fortunately, with the sort of the creative wonders that you get on this show and and. Um, um, but yeah, th- there is those there are those tournaments on the, on the forum which which seem to to be quite popular and, and 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 always always good for getting fresh insights. I always love it when people vote against the perceived majority because there's some, always some interesting ones on why people don't always go with you know the the route that you'd expect to be. It's always great to hear different insights and different views into stories which you've you know there's, there's a sort there's, there's a almost a hive mind sometimes in fandom that you get this sense of this story is good because of this and this story is bad because of that. And I just love when people throw an alternative take onto something um it just really freshens up your own eyes when you look at those stories back and things that make you think about stories in a different way which is why listening to this podcast is is so great because it it does similar things it sort of gives you those those fresh sights into into things that you would otherwise be dully familiar with and and you can just sit in your own sort of mire of of self-perception to to try to understand so yeah sorry i've drifted off topic that's no, the project no, I'm working on. Well, you know, the forum stuff. Go to the general forum on the 2008 boards. Look for forum's favourite thrills. As you say, it's round two matches at the moment. I notice that you've got a match between Maelstrom and the aforementioned taxidermist going on in one of the round two matches yes. at the moment. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's where and, to find and we'll be start, probably, I don't know when this is coming out, but we're probably just about peeking into round three, and that's when things start to get very juicy. You, you start to get some pretty, pretty mind-stretching head-to-heads in that. I, I will say, I've literally written up one for about four or five weeks' time, and um, you know, it's, it, I'm glad I don't vote on them. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so this episode is going to be out, I think, uh, end of the first week of May. So two weeks' time, just over two weeks from now. Um, yeah, just as we're all getting geared up for Lawless, or in your case, for round three of Forum's favourite thrill. Yes. <laughs> Uh, look in the show notes for this episode to get a link to that and to find yeah. out where Colin is um, sorting sorting out <laughs> what is the forum's favourite. We, we we will have a definitive answer. We will be able to tell people what is yeah what is the favourite fill in in two thousand history. It will be it will be a fact. We will we will have voted. We will have spoken. Yes. Um, another thing to put in the show notes, just something that I, I haven't mentioned that I didn't mean to mention is is there's an article by uh, Chloe Mayville. It's one of the few write ups I've been able to find online about um, uh, outcasts, and she gives some some very interesting insights into it as well. So I'll pop you the link to that if you don't mind. And and, and she, Chloe Mayville was one of the people who spoke on the journalist panel at the forty fifth. Oh right. Um, okay. Yeah. Celebration. Um, she's a, an American, a freelance writer, and she's uh, she's done a quite a nice little write up about ICAST. So if people do want to get a sort of a, a second window into it, I think that's one of the few few bits of really good writing I've been able to find about it. And I, if, if it's okay with you, I'll pop that along to you to, to include if that's all right. Yeah, excellent. Send me that, and I'll put it in the show notes for this episode. And also, without doxing you, send me your address, and I will send you the coveted Mega City Book Club um, plastic coaster, which all my guests get. Oh. You... <laughs> Thank you very much. That's your appearance fee, yes. <laughs> Colin, great it's stuff. More than I'm worth, so thank you. <laughs> 
And thank you for giving up your time on this Friday evening to record. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved every minute of it. And, and, and you know, first time waffler, long time listener, as the cliche gets missaid. Thank you. Let's send everybody to eBay to get their copies of Outcasts. Um, yes. And Go and buy it. It's brilliant. Yeah. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. Uh, follow uh, the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the 2000G forums. Uh, email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you want to come on the show yourself. Uh, if you want to pick the light and darkness war and come and talk about that, let me know. Um, and that will do us. So, Colin, until next time when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me. And good night from him. Good night. Wow.